Good morning. It's good to be back in Hebrews, and I'm sure many of you have been looking forward to Hebrews chapter 11. So if you will turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can find this on the, in the Pew Bible on page 696, Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to back up our reading this morning. We're going to start reading in chapter 10, verse 32, and we'll go through chapter 11, verse 7. And so as you find your place in God's word this morning, if you would stand as we honor the reading of the word. We'll begin reading this morning Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. We'll go through verse 7 of chapter 11. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the examples of great men of faith. I pray that we will be encouraged today. May your spirit speak through your word and strengthen your people so that we might leave here as people of faith. And we pray that this will all be for the great glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We don't often, if ever, consider how some of the common words we use have undergone changes, even significant changes over time. Think about the word awful. Awful originally referred to something that was worthy of respect or fear. To be awful was to be something or someone that inspired awe. Uh, we've occasionally sung here the Isaac Watts hymn, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. And Watts uses awful in its original sense. It wasn't until the, the early 1800s that the word awful took on the, the more modern sense of something being very bad or terrible. Terrible is another word that has changed from its original meaning. That, like awful, terrible meant something that caused terror or dread. Now it too simply means very bad. Bad is also a word that has changed meanings. It originally meant inadequate or worthless. And then it moved to meaning evil or wicked. 
and then became a slang term for good. Anyone who grew up in the 80s knows that sick means excellent. It's the same with the word ill. Words can change meanings over time. And if we don't define a word in the same way as another person who's using the same word in a conversation, we may end up talking past each other, making communication difficult, if not impossible. For instance, if we're defining awful as very bad, then we'll be confused when we hear the words of that Isaac Watts hymn. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. Why would it be awful for Christ to display his love? Well, it's not bad, but it should inspire awe. Or if I were to say something like, Jay's preaching is so sick, you might think that I was insulting our brother instead of complimenting him using slang that sounds really stupid coming out of my mouth. Your sermons are really sick, brother. <laughs> Another word that has unfortunately undergone significant changes in meaning is the word prominently featured here in Hebrews chapter 11, the word faith. I imagine that for most of us, the word faith is synonymous with trust or belief. But for those within the word of faith movement, however, faith is a creative force that people can use. Faith is a force and your words activate that force. So if you speak positive words of faith, then positive things will happen to you. On the flip side, if you speak negative words of unbelief, then negative things will happen to you. Or maybe you just need to sow a seed of faith usually with money, and that seed of faith will multiply good things, again, usually money, back to you. Some Christians confuse faith with emotionalism. I feel something, therefore I have faith. Skeptics and even some Christians define faith as something akin to wishful thinking. Something that is contrary to facts and logic, but you believe it anyway. We know the phrase, a leap of faith, or this Jesus take the will kind of faith. Some Christians treat faith like it's the religious version of the little engine that could. I think I can. I think I can. It's the spiritual practice of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Something that you have to produce. There's a lot of confusion and competing definitions for that one little word, faith. And if we don't define our term accurately, we're just going to be talking past each other on this vitally important topic. Worse, you'll misunderstand the Bible. You'll misunderstand in the biblical teaching on faith. However, we don't have the liberty of defining faith any way that we would like. Rather, the scriptures tell us what faith is. And the scriptures tell us how true saving faith operates. And that meaning does not change over, over the course of time. Hebrews 11 has been called the Faith Hall of Fame it deals chronologically with some of the most important personalities in the Old Testament as it highlights their faith. But this chapter, at least in my experience, has typically been read almost like a parenthesis in the book of Hebrews, entirely separated from the surrounding context of the book. It's often treated like a series of character studies. But Instead of doing that, we, we ought to study this chapter as an integral part of the, the exhortation that began back in chapter 10, verse 19, and leads us all the way through to the end of the book. Don't let the, the chapter divisions distract you. Chapter 11 ties directly into what has, has just been said 
in chapter 10. That's why we begin our reading this morning in verse 32 of chapter 10, because we, we have this seamless transition from chapter 10 to chapter 11. Remember, these Christians to whom this book is written are enduring terrible hardships for the sake of the gospel. Some are being tempted to fall away and to return to the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. And so the the author of the book encourages them to remember how they once faithfully endured persecution. How in the past they, they were faithful to endure the sufferings for the sake of Christ. And now he is encouraging them in light of what they've done in the past to persevere in the present and into the future. In verses 37 and 38, the author quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2. And there he pronounces a blessing on those who live by faith and a curse on those who shrink back in unbelief. Before stating in verse 39 that we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This statement, verse 39 of chapter 10, leads us directly into chapter 11. We are of those who have faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is meant to promote community solidarity. You're not alone, Christian. You're not the first believer, and you will not be the last. There is a long line of godly men and women of faith. And what Hebrews chapter 11 is doing is that it's inviting you, it's exhorting you to join that line of those who have faith. Like chapter 6, verses 11 and 12 states, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's the invitation. That you would not grow sluggish, but that you would become imitators of those who have faith. And the apostle in that last sentence of chapter 10 says, we are those who have faith. But what does it mean that we are of those who have faith? Chapter 11 defines and illustrates true faith so that you would persevere to the very end and preserve your soul, just like the men and women mentioned in these verses. So we're going to start in verses 1 through 7. And what we have in chapter 11, verses 1 through 7, it's, it's not a complete definition of faith. It's not meant to be some kind of systematic treatment, but rather we see seven aspects of true saving faith that we're going to consider this morning in order that we might emulate these great heroes of the faith. Seven aspects of true saving faith so that we might emulate these great heroes of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is not meant to be an academic paper on faith. It's not meant to be a Bible study that's abstract from what's going on in the world. Chapter 11 is for living. Chapter 11 is filled with exhortations to apply these truths to your life. Don't leave here with a head full of knowledge. Well, I know what faith is now. Leave here saying, I know what it is and I am ready to live it out. That's what Hebrews chapter 11 is all about. Now, seven aspects of true saving faith. We obviously won't have time to devote equal amounts of attention to each of these seven aspects, though I see that it's only 1021 according to the pulpit clock. So I don't think we'll need to spend equal amounts of time for each of these seven aspects, but what I want us to take away this morning is the character of saving faith. And this encouragement that no matter how we might suffer for the sake of Christ in this world, that we're not alone. That 
we are part of a stream of faithful saints that began in Genesis and extends down to the very present. And so my encouragement, the author of Hebrews' encouragement, is for you to jump into that stream and be men and women of faith. So let's look at these seven aspects of true saving faith this morning. We'll begin in verse 1. The first aspect is that faith works. Faith works. It begins with now faith is. We're going to see a definition here. But again, it's not a full definition of faith. It's not all that we can say about faith. Rather, it highlights the necessary component of faith for this particular situation. Faith is the ESV, along with the New American Standard and the Legacy Standard, has the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It emphasizes the subjective side of faith. The, the things hoped for is the inheritance promised to believers in the future. We have an assurance of it, that future homeland that we will study next week in verses 13 through 16. The things not seen refer to God's character, his purposes, his power. And we'll look at that further in verse 3. That the ESV translation it leans more towards the subjective side of faith. I have inward assurance of those future promises. I have inward conviction of God's power. And while I don't want to dismiss the subjective side, I think it's accurate to say that there is a subjective feeling that we have as, as individual Christians. We have faith, but I think the author is saying more here. I think he's emphasizing the objective side of faith. So the King James Version reads that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The Christian Standard Bible, I think, is, is even stronger. It says faith is the reality of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen. It's objective over subjective. The word translated here in verse 1 as assurance is the Greek word uh, hypostases. It was first used in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God the Father's nature, his hypostases. The, the Greek word, it's, it's used to distinguish appearance from reality. Jesus doesn't merely appear or seem like God. Jesus has the same hypostases. He has the same substance. He is not just appearing as God. He is in reality God. He has the substance of God. Or we can speak of the hypostatic union, a theological term for the fact that Jesus has two natures. He is both truly God and truly man, but those two natures, they come together in the incarnation in the hypostatic union. He is one person. He has one hypostasis, is what the Chalcedonian Creed says. He is both truly God and truly man, and yet he is one person. Now back to... Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. I know that's a lot of theology to, bring, to, to try to cram in. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the hypostasis. Faith is the substance, not merely the appearance of things hoped for, but the reality of things hoped for. Now, what does that mean? We have to remember the context. He's, he's, he's not talking about a feeling. He's not talking about something, something inward that we just have mental assent to or, or we just have this, this, this feeling in us. He's, he's talking about working. He's talking about doing because faith is more than just a subjective feeling. James chapter 2 speaks of dead faith. There's a dead faith, but what James says is that living faith works. 
And that's the point the author is trying to get across here by using this, this word hypostases. Faith is not theoretical. It is a way of living. And so one commentator translates this verse as faith is living in accordance with the reality of things hoped for. Or faith is living as if the things hoped for are real. It's looking at the world in a certain way and conforming your life to it. It's not just a theory, it's a reality. And we'll see this clearly as we go through the Faith Hall of Fame. We'll see that, that these men and women of faith are not people that simply have some kind of verbal confession, but they actually put their faith to work. Now, it's important that when you hear me say that faith works, that you don't hear me saying that these works are meritorious or that these works save us. We have to get that very clear. We are saved by faith alone. But it's impossible to speak about faith without also speaking of works. But it's not the works that save, but rather it's the kind of faith that produces good works that saves. Faith first, then works. But you can't have faith and not have works. James again in James chapter 2 says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. It's easy to say, I have faith. It's another thing to actually demonstrate that faith in the way that you live. That's why John Calvin said, it is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Martin Luther says, idle faith is not justifying faith. He goes on to say, we are not saved by works, but if there be no works, there must be something amiss with faith. Faith is the substance, the reality of things hoped for. It is living in accordance with your belief. But verse 1 also says it's the conviction or better, the King James says it's the evidence, or the Christian standard says the proof of things not seen. Faith is not a shot in the dark. Faith is not a shot in the dark. It's not, it's not a leap of faith. That's not biblical faith. The, the Greek word here that's translated by the ESV is conviction. It means a legal argument substantiated by evidence. The evidence, the proof, is found in the following verses of this chapter. See how God has worked in the past. See the proof of his faithfulness. See the evidence of his power. And then believe that the same faithfulness and the same power is true for you today. And tomorrow. And the next day. And the next day. And forever. And then live accordingly. That's the nature of true faith. Faith is not simply a feeling. Nor is it even a verbal confession. I believe in Christ. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of God. But who inherits it? Those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Right? It's not even a mental assent to theological truths. You can say yes to everything that we see in Hebrews chapter 10 and Hebrews chapter 11 and still perish. <coughs> John MacArthur writes, saving faith is a fundamental commitment of the whole person to the whole Christ with his mind, heart, and will. The believer embraces Jesus as Savior, Advocate, Provider, Sustainer, Counselor, and Lord God. And then he lives like it. He lives like this is true. Or as another commentator puts it, the flip side of apostasy, the flip side of falling away, is faith. Faith works. And we'll see this illustrated in the lives of the Old Testament saints in Hebrews chapter 11, which leads us to the second aspect of true faith. 
The second aspect is found in verse 2. Salvation is always through faith. Salvation is always through faith. As Christians, we hold to the five solas or the five alones of the Protestant Reformation. We believe that the final authority of our doctrine and practice is Scripture alone. And we hold that salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus alone. And all of this is to the glory of God alone. But if we're not careful, we'll act and talk like those are only New Testament ideas. Search the scriptures and see. These five ideas are found all over the Old Testament as well. And that's exactly what verse 2 says. For by it, by faith, the people of old, it's the word presbytery, the elders, it's a respectful term for the saints of the Old Testament. By faith, the saints of the Old Testament received their commendation. The word translated as received their commendation is the same word for martyr. It means to bear witness, or in this case, it means to have witness born about them. It's found all throughout the book of Acts. Stephen, this word is used, it's translated as he had a good repute. Cornelius and the prophet Ananias and Timothy are well spoken of. The widows of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10, they're supposed to have a reputation for good works. It's all the same word. The King James translates verse 2 as saying, the elders earned a good report. By faith, the saints of the Old Testament, they bore witness to the power and faithfulness of God. And in response, the author of Hebrews says, God bore witness to them. He commended them. Verse 2 is just another way of saying Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. By faith, the saints of the Old Testament were justified. That's what verse 2 says. And so it has always been. The saints of the New Testament and the saints of the Old Testament have always been saved the same way. By faith. The law may have been given to Israel in the Old Testament along with the priesthood and the temple and the animal sacrifices, but the believers to whom this letter was written needed to be reminded that no one has ever been saved by the law, no one has ever been saved by the priest, no one has ever been saved by the animal sacrifices. For as the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, no one is justified before God by the law. Or as he says in Romans chapter 3, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And he goes on in Romans chapter 4 to give the examples of Abraham and David as people in the Old Testament who were justified by faith alone. So don't trust in works. Don't trust in religious practices. Don't trust in sacrifices. Salvation has always been and will always be through faith in the promises of God. And these promises have always centered on the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how the Old Testament saints were saved. By faith in the promises of God centered on Christ. The elders were commended. So cease striving to be right with God through your good deeds. And by faith, believe on Jesus alone. That's how the people of old received their commendation. It's the only way in which you will receive your commendation before God as well. Salvation is always by faith. That's the second aspect. The third aspect is found in verse 3. Faith has God's word as its foundation. Faith has God's word as its foundation. By faith, we understand that the universe, literally the ages, time and space, was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. We call this creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. God did not take pre-existing stuff or matter and make the universe. 
He spoke into the nothing. And by his words, everything that exists came into existence. This is Genesis 1. And it sets Christianity against an atheistic, purely materialistic worldview. It's funny that the atheist always has to sneak in some material thing to get the Big Bang going. Stephen Hawking, who by all worldly accounts was a genius, believed that the Big Bang was the inevitable consequence of the laws of physics. He says, quote, because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Thank you. <laughs> that statement deserves a laugh. Let me read it again so we can all get a good chuckle. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. This statement makes absolutely no sense. And it violates the law of non-contradictions. Where did the laws of physics come from? Where is the law of gravity coming from when there's nothing? There cannot be at the same time nothing and the law of gravity. We don't even have a reference point for the idea of nothing. As soon as you close your eyes and try to imagine nothing, you're thinking about something. One apologist states that this idea of spontaneous existence out of nothing is worse than magic. He says, at least in magic, a magician pulls a rabbit out of a hat. In the case of existence out of nothing, though, there's no hat and no magician. There's just a rabbit appearing out of nowhere. In Christianity, however, we believe in an eternal, immaterial, personal God. He has no beginning. He's a spirit. He's not made of matter. And he spoke, and all matter sprang into existence. That's Genesis 1, but it's also Hebrews 11.3. But there's, there's more that we can get out of this verse, I think. The author begins here at Genesis 1.1 because he's going to go through some illustrations chronologically, and, and he naturally starts at the beginning. But, but there's an aspect to faith here also. He says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. We, we understand that God created everything. He created everything out of nothing. But, but how do we know this? How do we know this? No one was around to see it. We believe it by faith. But remember the nature of faith. It's not wishful thinking. It's not some man-made theory. It's not a subjective feeling. It's not even our apologetic evidences and reasonings as helpful as those things can be. Not only did God create the world by his word, but he has also revealed the fact that he created everything by his word through his given word, the Bible. Our faith is not groundless. It is rooted in revelation. God has spoken. And we hold that word, that revelation here in our hands. Here it tells us of the origin of the universe. And we believe it. Our faith has a foundation. What did we sing? How firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord is, is found in his word. His word. His word, right? Faith has a foundation. It's in the Bible. But the faith is also the source or instrument of faith. Paul in Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The spirit creates faith in our hearts through the word of God. So you want to grow in faith? You want to be imitators of the men and women we're about to study in Hebrews chapter 11? Read, believe, and obey the word of God. I came across this great quote from a pastor in California a few weeks ago. He says, my faith is simple. I read the Bible. I believe what I read. Our faith is 
rooted and grounded in the word of God. Faith works. Salvation is always through faith. Faith has God's word as its foundation. The fourth aspect is found in verses four through five. Faith has both its sorrows and its triumphs. Faith has both its sorrows and its triumphs. The first two examples of faith given are Abel and Enoch. And the author presents them in such a way that they complement each other. We're supposed to read them and think about them together as a pair. Abel's story is found in Genesis chapter 4. He was the second son of Adam and Eve. He was a shepherd. He and his older brother Cain both brought sacrifices to God. Cain brought an offering of produce of the ground because he was a farmer. And Abel brought the firstborn of his flock since he was a shepherd. And Abel's sacrifice was accepted, or as Hebrews 11 verse 4 says, that God commended him by accepting his gifts. He was commended, while Cain's offering was rejected. And so we know the story. Cain murders Abel. A lot of ink has been spent in both Jewish and Christian writings to try and explain why Abel's offering was accepted, while Cain's was not. Everything from the Greek translation, the Septuagint, saying that Cain did not follow the correct rituals, to Abel offering something that was living, while Cain offered something that was non-living. Um, some have suggested that Abel brought what was naturally born, while Cain brought something that was forcefully grown. And there's a lot of streams of thought that say that animals are better than vegetables. I'm here to say that that is a true statement. But in all of these writings, the focus is always on the gift. Hebrews 11 focuses on the man. It focuses on Abel himself. Listen to John Calvin's simple explanation. All of these, all of these creative ways that people are trying to explain it, listen to Calvin. He says first that Abel's sacrifice was for no other reason preferable to that of his brother, except that it was sanctified by faith. Pretty original, right? For surely the fat of brute animals did not smell so sweetly that it could by its odor pacify God. The scripture indeed shows plainly why God accepted his sacrifice. For Moses' words are these, God had respect to Abel and to his gifts. It is hence obvious to conclude that his sacrifice was accepted because he himself was graciously accepted. But how did he obtain this favor? except that his heart was purified by faith. The text says Abel was commended for his faith and that God showed his acceptance of Abel by then accepting his gift. Now, there, there may be something in the offering that he brought, but that's not the point. The point is that Abel was accepted and then his offering was accepted. And he was accepted by faith. And yet we read here in verse 4 that despite his faith, he died. He was murdered for his faith. This would have been especially significant for these believers to whom this book is being written who are suffering for their faith. But on the other hand, we have Enoch in verse 5. Enoch is found in Genesis chapter 5 in a passage that you probably love to read, a genealogy. A list of names... And Enoch shows up in the middle of this genealogy. He is the seventh generation from Adam. And what sets Enoch apart in this genealogy is that throughout Genesis chapter 5, there is this, this punctuated, repeated phrase, and he died. Adam lived 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 912 years, and he died died. Enosh lived 905 years and he died. Everyone dies in Genesis chapter 5 except Enoch. Enoch doesn't die. Genesis chapter 5 verses 22 through 24 reads, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. 
Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, five times the author uses language to communicate this fact that Enoch did not face death. Why did he not die? He walked with God. This harkens back to Adam's relationship with God in the Garden of Eden, where God walked in the cool of the day. Hebrews 11 says it was by faith. And by his faith, he was commended by God. He pleased God. That's what the Greek translation of Genesis 5.22 says, that Enoch pleased God. And so he was taken He did not see death. He was translated into heaven. Now I want you to look at verses 4 and 5. And with your finger or with your pen, I want you to, to find these phrases. Though he died, and so that he should not see death. Find those two phrases. They're they're set in juxtaposition with each other. Abel died. Enoch did not see death. The prosperity preachers are peddling something that cannot be supported by verse 4. Having faith does not mean health, wealth, and happiness. And being highly favored, as Joel Osteen likes to say, does not mean everything in your life will prosper. You might die. And your circumstances are not the evidence that God is pleased with you. See, the world will look at at Abel and say, well, if God really was pleased with him, then he wouldn't have let him die. It's not what Hebrews 11 says. One commentator said, Abel pleased God even though he died, and Enoch pleased God and didn't die. It wasn't the circumstances that determined whether God was pleased with them. And though he died, Abel still speaks And he reminds us that being a man or a woman of faith means that sometimes you'll taste sorrows. Sometimes all you'll have to hold on to as you feel like you're drowning in tears and pain and loss are the promises of God. But hold on to, believe those promises you must. For that's what it means to be a person of faith. But it's not gloom and despair because set next to Abel is Enoch. He walked with God by faith and he did not see death. The example of Abel's faith reminds us that we might experience suffering and sorrow and pain. But the faith of Enoch that comes right after reminds us of our future hope. That no matter the sorrows, the trials, the tribulations, God's promises will all come true. And so we live and walk by faith. Another commentator said, all like Abel will die without the fullness of what God has promised. All like Enoch are promised triumph over death. This is what it means to have faith. Because faith is has both its sorrows and its triumphs. The fifth aspect that we find is found in the second part of, or in the first part of verse six. It's very simple. Faith is necessary. Faith is necessary. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Again, he's drawing from his quote of Habakkuk in chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. If someone apostatizes, if someone does not live by faith, God does not have pleasure in him. He's not pleased. He he doesn't commend him. And so based on that, that passage in Habakkuk, he makes application. Enoch pleased God. Abel was commended by God as righteous. How else can we understand that than that these men both had faith? 
The connection between chapter 10, verse 38, 11, verses 4 and 5 is clear. It is only by faith that a person can please God, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. What he has taken great care to communicate and what he will expand upon further in this chapter is that faith is not optional. Faith is not optional. It's, it's, not, it's not as if there are different streams of Christianity and, and one stream says, well, you, you need faith. The other says, well, you can do all these rituals and you get to the same place. What the author of Hebrews is saying is there is only one way to inherit the promises and it is by faith. And it is impossible to please God without faith. And again, remember what we mean by the word faith. Don't, don't, don't go changing definitions on me in the middle of the sermon. He doesn't mean simply an emotional feeling or a verbal confession or even mental assent to certain theological truths. He means belief in the promises of God that translates into a particular way of living. That's what he means by faith. And this would have been especially vital for these believers to grasp. Go back to temple worship. Offer as many animal sacrifices as you please. They will not make you commendable before God. They will never please God. Because if you fail to persevere in the face of trials, persecutions, and sufferings, if you abandon the church, if you leave Christ, if you try to avoid pain by conforming to society and its acceptable practices and beliefs, you have shrunk back. You have apostatized. You have revealed that you have no faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith, true saving faith, isn't optional. It's necessary. That was the fifth aspect of faith. The sixth aspect of faith is found in the second half of that verse, verse 6. True living faith has as its object the true living God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Why is it impossible to please God without faith? Because whoever would draw near to God, that, that's a phrase that's been used throughout the book of Hebrews to describe true worship. Whoever would draw near to God in true worship must, as an absolute necessity, believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith always has an object. Faith always has an object. It's not some ethereal feeling or force. We aren't told to have faith in our faith. We're to have faith in God. We're to have faith in an object. And your faith is only as good as the object in which you place your faith. Whether you place your faith in yourself, or you place your faith in your money, or your doctor, or your employer, whatever it might be, we all, we all place our faith in a variety of different things every day. You're placing your faith in these pews right now that they won't break under you, and that might be misplaced faith. But most of the time, we're exercising faith in an object simply based upon mathemat mathematical probabilities. I have faith that my car will start after church because the probability is it always starts after church. Or I'll get on an airplane, I'll put my faith in it and a pilot because mathematically I believe that it's safe. But we're talking about real, true, saving faith here. We're, we're talking about a faith that we base our lives upon. That has as its foundation God's revealed word. It's a faith that is necessary. It's a faith in which we will conform every aspect of, of our existence to. This faith must have an object that can support that kind of faith, and it does. It has the true and living God. The object of our faith is the God who has spoken, the God who has promised, the God who has demonstrated his power, his love, his goodness, his faithfulness, the God who can be trusted. Whoever would draw near to God and 
throughout the book of Hebrews, we've been encouraged to do just that, to draw near to God. Whoever would draw near to worship this God must believe that he exists. The word here translated as exists, I think maybe mask a little bit of what's going on here. The word that, that's translated as exists is simply the word is. Whoever would, would draw near to this God must believe that he is. That he is. I've heard too many Christians argue for the existence of a God. And leave it at that, as if the goal of our faith is to convince an atheist that there is a God. And mission accomplished, we're good. There will be many people who believe in a God. Maybe even who believe in a God very similar to the God of the Old Testament. Who will perish forever. Because it's not the faith in a God that saves. But faith in this God that saves. And the gods of Islam or of Judaism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons is not this God. This God is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. This God, God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God the Son who came in the flesh and died for sinners who has been raised and exalted and who is coming again to rescue his people and judge the world. This is God, the Holy Spirit, who has been sent by the Father and the Son, who effectually calls people to Christ, who regenerates, who seals, who sanctifies. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that this God is. Because we cannot draw near except by the blood of Christ, the blood of the Son of God slain for us. It is this triune God of both the Old and New Testaments who we must believe in. And whoever would draw near to God must believe that he rewards those who seek him. They must believe that this God has made promises and that this God always keeps his promises. And that no matter what outward circumstances may look like, the man and woman of faith will cling to this God and hope in his word. And if you're not believing in this God, I would implore you today, turn from your sin and trust in him. It is impossible to please God without faith. And true saving faith has as its object this triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And if you don't believe, it's because you don't have faith. But believe me when I say that there is a Savior who has died to save people from unbelief. And that your every sin and your every transgression against God's law can be forgiven by looking to Jesus who died and rose again. You, you can't simply produce this faith. You can't drum this faith up. It's not like you go searching for this faith deep inside and, and you, you pull it up. This is a faith that only comes through the power of this God. This God who grants this faith to people. But in our despair at our unbelief, we can pray along with the man from Mark chapter 9, verse 24. I believe, help my unbelief. He is the God who rewards those who seek him. And if you will cry out to him, the Bible says he will be found. This leads us to the final aspect of faith in verse 7. Faith has a reward. Faith has a reward. Final example that we'll look at this morning is Noah. Is Noah. Even if he didn't grow up in church, you probably have a basic idea of the story of Noah. It's found in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. Uh, wickedness has filled the earth. And God's purpose is to destroy the earth and everything that lives on it. And he'll do this by sending a worldwide flood. But Noah, we read in, in Genesis chapter 6, finds favor it's 
a Hebrew word that can be translated as grace. Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so God instructs Noah to, he instructs Noah to construct an ark and to bring two of every kind of animal to bring his family into the ark. And Noah obeys and he saves himself and he saves his wife and his three sons and their wives and the animals that he brings into the ark. And Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 calls that faith. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By faith, Noah hears the word of God concerning events that are yet unseen, and we can only imagine the ridicule that Noah endured as he built this giant boat somewhere in ancient Mesopotamia, and he prepared for this unprecedented event. But in reverent fear, he believed the warning. He constructed an ark. God spoke both warnings of future judgment, and yet he promised salvation for those who were in the ark. Noah believed the word of God. He acted in accordance with that belief, and he was saved. That's faith. And in that story, we, we can see the, 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 the nature of true saving faith. Because if Noah had heard the word of God and he had said, I agree that this is going to happen. But then he had gone home and he just kicked his feet up and let everything work itself out. Jesus take the will. He and all of his family and all of the, the animals would have been destroyed in a worldwide flood. Because mental assent or verbal confession alone is not true faith. Noah believed, and then he acted. He obeyed. He conformed his life in accordance with what God had revealed. And in that, he was saved. And so it says, by this, by his true saving faith, Noah condemned the world. And he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. His, his faith produced two results. He condemned the wicked, unbelieving world who perished in the flood. But he also became an heir of righteousness. In other words, he was commended. He pleased God. His life was an illustration of what Habakkuk would later write. Yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. He preserved his soul. Noah obeyed and he preserved his soul. And the exhortation is for us to follow his example. God has spoken. Ultimately, as we read all the way back at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, he has spoken to us through his son. And we have words of warning that judgment is coming. But before that judgment falls, we have words of promise. There is a savior. There is a savior who has died for sinners. There is an ark And all those who take refuge in Christ will be saved from the cataclysm that is coming. So like Noah, take refuge. Take refuge in, in what God has given us for salvation. He hasn't simply given us a boat. He's given us his only begotten son whom he loves. Take refuge in Christ. Why would you refuse? And no matter what this world does or how unbelievers might oppose you, look to Christ and don't look back. Cling to Christ. Don't shrink back, but 
persevere by faith and preserve your souls. Become an heir of the righteousness, commended by God, pleasing in his sight, all based not on your works, but by faith in God and his word. And faith has a reward. As one theologian put it, the reward desired by those who seek God is the joy of finding him. That's the greatest reward. It's finding God. Being found righteous in his sight. Not because you've done all of these good deeds, but because of Christ and his righteousness that clothes us and we receive it and we live by faith. More could be said, of course, but this is our introduction to faith. This is how the Bible defines faith and it's what we need to be considering when we talk about faith. True faith works. It's not a feeling, it's a lifestyle, it's actions. Salvation is always by faith. Faith has God's word as its foundation. Faith has both its sorrows and its triumphs. Faith is necessary. Faith has the true and living God as its object. Faith has a reward. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's what the apostle writes. Does that describe you? Does that describe you? Are you of faith? True, saving faith. Or are you giving verbal confession to Christ, but when times get tough, when opposition hits, I'm going to go do something else. It's worth it. It's worth it to follow Christ. I hope that this description describes you. I hope that you are part of this long line of the people of faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. When our circumstances are hard, when the world opposes us, when even our own emotions would betray us, may we believe in God. May we believe in the promises of his word. May we cling to the Lord Jesus as our only hope. May we conform our lives to be obedient Pursuing holiness and godliness. And by this, may we prove to be those who are of faith. Let's pray together. Father, every word of Scripture proves true. We hear the exhortation. We see the examples of godly men that you graciously saved. May we heed the warnings. And may we, by your grace and by the power of your spirit, be men and women of faith. I pray for those here who are not those who have faith but are still living in unbelief or who are still straddling the fence or who are trusting in a mental assent to these theological truths 
who maybe even with their words would say, I believe these things. But their lives, their actions betray them. God, I pray that your spirit would do a powerful work of saving even today in our midst. I pray for those who still are outside of Christ. I pray that the Spirit would open their eyes to see that this is not just facts to to store in our brains, but that Christ is this glorious reality to whom all of our our lives are are owed. That he's deserving of, of not just our minds, but of our hearts, of our will, of our actions. But God, we know that with man it is impossible to please you. But that with you and your powerful effectual grace that you can tear down any walls of resistance and you can subdue any sinner to Christ. We pray that you would do this. And we pray that you would build up your church. May we be those of faith. And we pray that you will get great glory and honor today. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.